You're listening to Ants Talk. Tracy Horton grew up in New Zealand to a mentally ill father and an alcoholic mother. By the age of 12, she had been abused by 12 different men. She also lived in a third of a house as her father had burnt the other part down. It was by chance that she was given the opportunity to see a psychologist, which changed her life. Please welcome to the show, Tracy Horton. How are you, Tracy? I'm good, thank you, Ant. Oh, that's so good to hear. What an amazing story. Like, wow. (laughs) So you were born (laughs) in New Zealand. What part of New Zealand? I was born in um, South Auckland in the poor part. (laughs) Yeah. It I'm was a big back then. It's all kind of a bit different now. It is indeed. I'm a big, big fan of New Zealand. I actually got married in Queenstown myself. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. so I go over quite a bit. I, I absolutely love New Zealand. It's beautiful. So tell us about your, your upbringing in New Zealand. How did life start for you? Okay, so I guess probably the first time I realised we lived really differently to everybody else was when I went to school. Because on the first day of school in New Zealand, you go on your fifth birthday. Okay. That's how you celebrate your birthday back in the day. So I went to school this day and everybody put me in a circle and sang happy birthday to me and I never knew what they were doing. I hadn't had a birthday before that. I didn't really know what they were doing. And then school was really cathartic for me and the fact that once I understood if you were good at school, you could ignore the things that made you different. Mm. Um, It was also a real eye-opener because I realised that not everybody got hit on a regular basis. Other people took food to school. I never knew what that was. We never did that. So it was a really big eye-opener for me, and that's when I began to realise that in my home, normal was only a cycle on the washing machine. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely get that. I completely get it. And tell us more about your father. So my dad is a schizophrenic with five diagnosed personalities. So I don't know if any of you have seen The Beautiful Mind, but my dad is truly that guy. He hears and sees people that do not exist. So he would come home from work and somebody would have told him that my mum had been unfaithful, so he would beat her. They were, he would come home and um, tell he had to go and take something. So a lot of nights I was ripped out of bed. Um, He did a couple of burglaries where I had to wolf whistle and look out for him and I would have been six and seven at the time. So dad lived in a parallel universe really and so it was really hard to equate it into normal life. And then of course he had five personalities. So there's a couple of um, women who had been beaten to death and they believe my father did it but there was no way of ever proving it. Um, but they were they were found in the same place where he used to take my mum. So twice he took my mum and tried to kill her in a certain spot in Auckland. Um, both those times we spent 10 days after that hidden. Our names were changed and we were protected until they found Dad and calmed him down. Um, back in the day, they didn't force medication. You know, we're talking in the 60s here, so it was a really different way of life. So what was he working as at the time? Um, my dad had a hundred different jobs, only ever lasted a few months, yeah. um, but he was most of the time a truck driver. Right. And so do you think that that was maybe your, your mother's way of also self-medicating was to drink? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Mum had things done to her no woman should. But 
it was not easy as a child when your mum has to sign out, you know, when your mum has to check out to cope, that leaves you a little abandoned. Yeah. <laughs> so my sister and I were a bit wavered. At a very young age, I noticed that our lives were also very different. Um, both my parents had, you know, had a bit of a drinking problem at the time. Um, we used to move around a lot because of dad's work. Um, and I think the dysfunction came in the times when they would be drinking and be in, this would be sort of after the, say work at 6, 7 PM and all of these random strange people start turning up to your house to continue this party of drinking. And I mean, this goes on until 3 AM, 4 AM, you've got to get up to school for school the next day. Sometimes we would even be at the beach at four in the morning on the, the shores of a beach with some Maori people that we'd just met on the beach this night, listening to them sing. And the most rare, I mean, I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. The randomness yes. that's basically your everyday life. For sure. So mum and dad would take off to the pub at four in the afternoon. Um, they would leave a can of spaghetti and a can opener. I would open that and feed my sister and I half of it each. Um, sometimes it was baked beans, sometimes it was sweet corn, but it was we never really ate properly. And then they'd come home at 10 o'clock because, you know, they had 10 o'clock closing back in the day mm. and there'd be 20 people with them and the party would be on. Yeah. Um, most nights I'd be, got, I'd be get up, they would get me up to make me dance and perform for the people. That was where some of the other abuse took place because, as you know, when every... When every adult's drunk, nobody's really responsible or looking out, you know, so it's a very vulnerable stage for for a child. When you've said that you were actually abused from uh, 12 different men, was that sexually abused, I'm assuming? Yes. Yeah. Yep, sexually abused. So was that something that was happening in the home? Yes, it was, yep. Yeah. Oh, that's just absolutely horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. Um, and I believe that your family were also the owners of first domestic violence order in New Zealand. Can you tell yeah, us about so that? Things, things got to the stage where people started talking to mum because, like I said, twice he took mum and tried to kill her and she ended up in hospital. Mm. You know, one stage he broke all her fingers. You know, he began to, to escalate. And so yeah. people engaged her and said, you have to get to the doctor's. And so when they went, when mum took him to the doctors, he he lost it and he pretty much destroyed the doctor's office. And that was when the police were called. And so we were, we are the first family in Australia that got a non-molestation order is what they called them back then. And it means that in any Commonwealth country in the world for the rest of my life, dad can't be within 10 feet of me without my permission. Is your dad still alive? Yes, he, well, I presume he is, yes. Sure. Um, my dad randomly calls me every now and then because he is a schizophrenic and I believe his new wife has him medicated. And the question is always, would you like to have coffee? Um, and, I, and I say, not really, Dad. Okay, talk later. It's always a two-minute phone call. He always yeah. asks me how I am because he doesn't have a lot of memories that I have. Yeah. It's always a very pleasant conversation. So he called me about nine months ago. So as far as I know, I believe I'd be informed if he wasn't, but he might have passed. Yeah. And what about your mum? My mum lives in, a, in New Zealand with my sister. Our family's really disjointed and broken. Um, so I believe, again, I'd be told if she passed, yeah. but she doesn't have anything to do with me. And is that the same with your sister? 
yeah, my sister, I get, she went down this, the line of taking drugs. So she's quite bipolar. She's because obviously we both carry the schizophrenic gene. Yeah. Um, and she's kind of triggered it a little bit with some of her early drug use. So she's a bit bipolar and manic. And I, her and I don't really have a normal relationship. We're not really sisters like you'd normally expect. So yeah. it's just become healthier for everybody to just have some distance. Yeah. I suppose it's the thing too is that, um, you know, at the time you were probably each other's protectors, but that, you know, that also then changes as you both grow and sort of realise that, you know, you can walk away from certain situations once you're of age and can, you know, think straight and, you know, do that sort of thing. So it would be quite challenging to maintain a relationship after what you've both been through. For sure. And in my book, I said that, you know, you'd think that two children who suffered such violence and protected each other would become really close, but you actually resent each other. Yeah. You resent each other because you're both doing a role you never should have done. So the only way for you to even understand that as an adult is to kind of say, well, it was wrong. So if it was wrong, then you kind of label it with the face of your sister. So Mm. Yeah, it became really dysfunctional quite quickly for us as adults because yeah. we didn't have any foundation to actually be healthy. And um, what made you, so I'm assuming you moved to Australia yourself later on in life? Uh, with my husband, I moved 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, I've been married 33 years and Paul's a builder, so we moved for the building boom. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And I um so at age eighteen you were self also self medicating with alcohol, and we're actually caught so, drinking at work. <laughs> <laughs> and if you truly knew me, you'd know that that's kind of half funny still. So, um, I was, you know, it's very hard when you don't know yourself, and yeah. nothing's ever given to you to for that foundation. So, I was never encouraged. I was never you know, loved on in, a, in an appropriate way. So I really didn't have a clue who I was. So mm. for me, hanging out with my peers at 18, the easiest thing for me to do was to drink because I became this relaxed, easygoing person. I could hide away in amongst all the crowd and the noise. And so I was working as an assistant accountant and I'd been drinking the night before and I had to go to work the next day. So I think it was a Friday and I needed to sober up. And someone told me the easiest way to sober up is to have another drink. So my boss caught me putting Bailey's in my coffee at 8 a.m. and asked me what I was doing. And I said, having breakfast. (laughs) And he didn't find that very funny. Um, And so he sent me to the on-site psychologist. It was a really large company and they had over 500 people working for them. And so they sent me to the on-site psychologist. And so... I talked to the psychologist and obviously good at his job. He got me to tell my story for the first time. Wow. And um, it was him that said to me, you will, you will never amount to anything. You'll, you'll need to be medicated and probably dead by 30. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose at the same time, that was your first opportunity to sort of open the floodgates. And at the same time, here you are being told that. <laughs> yeah. So, Everybody sort of goes, oh, when they hear that story. But in hindsight, if you knew the woman then that was in his office, he was actually being really honest with me. And it was a great invitation for me to think, holy crap, I'm 18 years of age and my life is over. Yeah. And, And it really did cause me to step back and look, 
what do I want to be, who do I want to be and how do I want to be. And I went on a journey. I gave myself five years I was going to take my life because I didn't want to be the drunk in the bar. Yeah. I grew up with those women. I didn't want to be one. And I spent five, gave myself five years where I was just going to quietly take my life. And in five years, I discovered some real keys mm. to overcoming it and applying it. And I'm the woman I am today. Yeah, I was actually going to speak about that because you found nine keys to overcoming trauma and have implemented them and also written a book about them. Can you tell us more about the book? So the book is called The Unhappy Smile. And I got the title from the fact that I grew up, my mum's Polynesian, she's Tongan. So I grew up in a culture where people would always say to me, what's wrong with you? Just smile. Because, you know, we all bury things very, very deep in our culture. So for years, I I wore a very unhappy smile. It was a beautiful, radiant smile, but nobody could ever see what was behind it. And the book is based on the serenity prayer, where I talk about the three things I discovered that you can never change, which is your personalities. You know, I believe we come prepackaged with a personality. Mm. Um, then the nurture that we that we live in over that. So I can't I can't change the fact I was a broken child. I can't change the fact that I have parents that don't know my birth date, that I've never had a present on my birthday, that I didn't know what my birthday or Christmas was as a child. I can't change all that. And you have to be able to accept that stuff to grow and change. You can't yeah. heal until you accept that. And then I go on to look at the things that we can change such as the things that show up to let us know something's wrong, grief, anger, resentment, hurt. You know, those are the things we can change. Mm. And then the wisdom to know the difference. And I talk about forgiveness, which I'm a big advocate for because I believe it's the best gift you can give yourself because I think it's the only thing that can free you from the story. Um, and then bold love and, and boundaries and understanding how to put those in place for yourself and feeling guiltless about whether it affects anybody else. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, that's a really hard thing, I suppose, with your situation is that, I mean, your dad already had the mental issues, um, you know, throw alcohol into the mix of that and would be hard to sort of put blame because even though he did what he did, there's anyone that's been in a situation where they've sort of been struggling with alcohol or drugs or a multitude of things that we actually get, we all struggle with. I suppose it would have been very, very hard for him to even be normal, especially back oh, then when sure. there was so little sure. known about the, the illness and even the medication oh. was so limited. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was nothing for us to do. You know, there wasn't even like nowadays I would be in foster care. I would be in the home of somebody like you that was able, that had room and time to love somebody. But, you know, back in the day, people looked the other way. They just closed the windows when the noise started. That's just what happened because we didn't know anything else. And New Zealand was a very different place back then, I must say. I mean, I have a lot of Maori friends and, Alcohol was a, a huge issue in a lot of homes. It really Absolutely. was. And I, and I think that it's a similar thing here with the Aboriginal population in Australia. It's because, you know, they've had so many issues with sort of just being accepted and being able to live their lives normally. It's, it's sort of, yeah. I suppose, a, a, it's a scapegoat really for a lot of people. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, I think both with the Aboriginal people and back then with the Maoris, they were very marginalised. They were yeah. very dismissed. And so, you know, nobody's created to be like that. We're all no. created for, for passion and purpose. So you take that away from somebody and they get bored. Yeah. I think when they're bored, you know, they do stuff like drinking because it makes you happy. That's it. And I mean, funny enough, a lot of people here when I speak to them, and especially, you know, if they're, you know, full on racist and they're talking about Aboriginal people and, oh, you know, all they do is drink. I go to, I one thing I actually say to them is, who do you think introduced alcohol to the Aboriginals? Mm, We did. I know. They wouldn't have had alcohol if we didn't arrive. For sure. (laughs) They would have been a very happy nation without us here. So we need to remember that too. Um, and so where is the book available? It's available on my website. I self-published it for these first two years because every time a copy is sold, I donate a copy to a women's refuge oh, for an at-risk teenager. And I, and I donated in the name of the person that bought the book. So all over Australia, people are getting books from other people, not just me. Oh, that's amazing. Um, Yeah, and I really wanted to do that because it's my story. It's my passion project. So it's available on my website, which is tracyhorton.com, and it's T-R-A-C-E-Y-H-O-R-T-O-N.com. That's fantastic. I love that idea. I'm going to have to buy one myself now because I love that idea. I think that's brilliant. And I also love reading, so I'll get right into that. Good. This is Ant's Talk. So what do you think, um, what were the biggest sort of challenges growing up and sort of living your life now? What sort of the, what's a, what are the residue sort of issues that still lie around? Um, you know, I dedicated the book to my husband because I don't know how, but I met this incredible man who absolutely fell in love with me 33 years ago and to this day thinks I'm the best looking thing he's ever seen. And the first two years of our marriage, all I did was sabotage it. All I did was just try to, because I was convinced somebody that good couldn't be with somebody like me. And he would perpetually call me on it. And he saw the woman I am today way back then. And I think that that was a real gift for me because if I'd have been with somebody as needy as me, we would have absolutely imploded within months. I would not have been able to have a relationship. But he came from the absolute opposite spectrum to me and he just loved and loved and loved. Mm. Um, I think one of the hardest things, if I can be really honest with you, was that I had to actually grow up with my as I raised my children. So yeah. looking back, I think I made a lot of emotional mistakes. I think I allowed enmeshment and stuff that I've had to correct over the years because you know, I didn't know how to be a mum. I didn't yeah. really know how to be a woman. And so, you know, as the kids came along, I kind of just did it on the fly. Yeah. Fortunately, they're beautiful girls and Paul's been a great counterbalance for that. But I think actually doing your adult life is quite difficult when you're not taught it as a child. Mm, I can imagine. There'd be a lot of challenges in that, actually, a lot of challenges. Yeah, for sure. My biggest challenge is still to this day, and I say this to people all the time, is the inner voices yeah. of, of unworthiness. That will crop up. That little girl, that little six-year-old girl who was told she would amount to nothing, mm. crops up at every point of, you know, whenever I'm exhausted, whenever I'm going through a new thing in my business, she will crop up and I have to physically take a moment and let her know it's okay. She doesn't have to be here. I've got this. Yeah. I'm okay now, you know, and 
because you know people do courses around sexual abuse and when you're because you know we were bruised and and harmed a lot so teachers saw it and they give you a lot of courage encouragement and love but that in a voice nobody hears it yeah. and nobody understands what's going on personal struggle the thing is too is that we as humans anyway have that monkey brain that's constantly talking and questioning and, yeah. and doubting. And I mean, I only know what I think, so I can only go on what I'm, I hear. And I mean, I'm assuming that people like Beyonce, I mean, I'm hoping she hears them too. <laughs> no, it can't be just I'm all sure good. Does. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, and no, then I do. Throwing on top of that, a child that did have a hard time um, and has true sort of, right to those sort of negative thoughts as they get older it really does wear you down i mean a big thing that i think that we all need to realize is that if we can't actually quash or even help to heal those voices ourselves there's definitely people out there that can help us yeah there is there is yeah. so we should always and try and seek it for sure and i would encourage anyone who's been through trauma like that to read my book because it's, it's proven. Like, I, you know, I'm standing here before you today, a woman holding down a 33-year-old marriage with four girls who would tell you I was a great mum. Yeah. And so I have, I've defied the odds because I've put this stuff in place. So, you know, my book, there's a lot of other books out there too that are just resource to help people, you know. Shut yeah. yourself away with a glass of wine and just let yourself process. That's it, exactly, exactly. I think that's really, really important. <laughs> Love a podcast? Love some Ants Talk. Um, so if you knew that someone was, say if one of the listeners was in a similar situation to what you had been in yourself, what guidance or what sort of um, suggestions could you offer them? Uh, and my first suggestion to them would be to come to the realisation that the people that have hurt you are not thinking of you the way you are yeah. thinking of them. And to drop this, just drop it. Forgive them, pick up the pen and rewrite your own story. I say to all my clients and my children every day, write your own story. Do not let anybody else punctuate it, adapt it, paragraph it or anything. It's mm. your life. And it was a real turning point for me when I was, you know, at another party, you know, having drunk a little bit too much and again getting all deep with somebody who just wanted to walk away because they didn't want to hear it. It wasn't the time or the place. Yeah. And I just thought, what the hell am I doing? None of those 12 men are giving me a minute's thought. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, it's so true. It's funny how we can be really disre disregarded as youth. I mean, I look back at my own family and I look and I think to myself, you know, at the time this was happening, my parents were so young, really. I mean, they were 30s and I even look back then and I think even myself, there's no way I could have coped having four or five children and especially yeah. my dad because, I mean, dad was the sole money earner, really. So he had that pressure to go to work every day and, and to do what he needed to do for us to survive. Mm. And there would have been a lot of stress because there were stages there where we were living caravan because a some one of these jobs that he had that were promotions that he thought he was going to get for the company that he worked for for almost 30 years didn't come through and we moved all of our stuff down from a kai and a car and ended up in a caravan and then that again was a whole nother 
lot of issues because of purely the people that were we were associating with then in that yeah. caravan park. Sure. Yeah, it gets scary. It definitely does. Um, what I wanted to do is just to remind listeners too, if anything um, that we're chatting about at the moment brings up any issues or you'd like to talk to somebody, then there is also always Lifeline that you can give a call to. It's just 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Um, and you can contact them. You can also go on and just live chat on their website, but it, it's always a good number to have on hand. Because we all go through issues and stages in our lives where we just need to chat to somebody and have a talk. Once again, could you just reiterate your website for people to come and have a look and learn more about you and the amazing book that you've written? Yes, it is www.tracyhorton.com, T-R-A-C-E-Y-H-O-R-T-O-N. Fantastic. Now, Tracy, before we end, I always like to lighten the mood a little after the deep issues yeah. that we talk about. So I've got yeah. some questions for you from a little boy called Jet who lives in New Zealand. Okay. All righty. Right. So they're random questions, just remember, because these are from kids. <laughs> so if yeah. you don't... Sounds great. So try you, try, you can just try and make up an answer if you, you don't really know <laughs> the answer. So um, what comes after the universe? What comes after the universe? Jet, I would imagine another universe. Yeah, but I'm I not particularly sure. Not particularly <laughs> sure. It is a hard one, that one. That was a really good question. Yeah. Um, I don't really get this one, but you may get it. What comes after Googleplex? Well, I'm 55, so I don't know what Googleplex is. I don't <laughs> so, either. I'm 50 and I've but, got no idea. <laughs> but I would imagine the way we're going, it's got to be robots. Yes, I right? agree. We're getting, we're getting more and more automated. It's got to be robots. And you know what? After this, I'm, I'm definitely going to be Googling what Googleplex yes. is. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> we know Google well, but I don't know about this Plex thing. But I hope, Jet, that, that you, your, your questions were answered by us yeah. as well as we possibly can as old people. Yeah. <laughs> and let me, let me tell you this question, Ed. I have an autistic grandson who's five and once a week I get the privilege of picking him up from school. So I picked him up from school last week and he's in the back of the car and he says, Nana, if girls are pink and boys are blue, what colour's God? <gasps> oh, I love that. <laughs> and, I, and I said, um, purple? <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> See, I, I would have said white. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well done. Because <laughs> he's always wearing white. He lives in the clouds, yeah. you know. That's <laughs> what I would have thought. There's actually a great show on at the moment. Um, it's on Netflix and it's about an autistic boy and his life. Um, you really should have a look at it. It's, it's done extremely well. Off the top of my head, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's on Netflix. Okay, it should come up on the newer things. Yeah. Um, but you should, do, you should have a look because it, it's very, very well done. They've done a great job yeah. and it's a really touching series. I've watched all of it now. Great. I actually binge watched it. Okay. I just wanted to thank you so much for coming onto the show and then talking to it about your story. I just think it's absolutely fascinating and I think it's amazing what you've done and to sort of turn this around and to make it into a positive in not only your life, but also other people's lives. I think it's absolutely thank amazing you. and you should be very, very proud of yourself. Yeah, I am. I am now. Good. I am. Great so, to hear. And it was lovely to meet you. I think you're a fantastic guy. And thanks for having Thank me on you. the show. Just loved oh, it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Tracy. We'll speak soon.
Bye. Bye. Ants Talk. It's like Oprah, but not.